Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What the first deal they built, I bet. No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item. Backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, it's Rick Houston, and welcome to the very first episode of The Scene Vault, the podcast. And with me is a person who has truly had one of the biggest influences on me, certainly in my NASCAR career. He's been a mentor. The last few years, he's been a friend. And I want to introduce to you Steve Wade. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Rick, and thanks for having me. <laughs> well, you know, I really don't know where to start, but this is going to be a podcast celebrating NASCAR history. Right. And I don't know of any other publication that was as influential as first Grand National scene and then Winston Cup scene and finally NASCAR scene. But for how many years did you work there? 30 Seven? Yeah, I was there from 1981 to 2010. Yeah. So for many years, you had your finger on the pulse of 
the NASCAR scene for <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. First of all, I know that you covered your very first race, what, in 1970? 1971, Martinsville. I had gone to work for the Martinsville Bulletin, my first newspaper job. And I was told that I'd be covering the fall race at Martinsville Speedway. Well, I was terrified. I mean, I didn't know anything about NASCAR, about stock car racing. I'd only heard of Richard Petty and Cale Yarbrough. <laughs> Those are only names I wow. knew. Okay. But I was very fortunate because, like uh, so many of us, I discovered a mentor at Martinsville Speedway, Stick Thompson, at the time the PR director of the Speedway, and he was until his death. And he realized that for Martinsville to gain the most out of their local publication, the writer had to know the sport. So he took me under his wing, and he took me down into the uh, pits, and he introduced me to uh, every driver that we came upon, uh, even the ones that nobody knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you a quick, interesting story. Most of them were very polite, said hello, how are you? I was introduced to Richard Petty. Who? Richard Petty. <laughs> Never heard Let of him. Let me play again. <laughs> Richard Petty. <laughs> and uh, he reached out, shook my hand, and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Welcome. If I can help you in any way, you let me know. That was my first inkling of the kind of man he was. But after that introduction and, and, and uh, to the sport by Dick, and who taught me a lot, I felt more comfortable, and uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to enjoy covering races at Martinsville for as long as I was there, which is only 18 months before I got a phone call from Roanoke, Virginia, a much bigger paper, of course. They covered everything in the state, uh, and NASCAR, and the Washington Redskins, and the Baltimore Colts, and boy, I was in the major league now. And uh, I started with Roanoke. I covered my first race for them in Atlanta, the first time I'd ever gone to Atlanta, and stayed there for 10 years and really enjoyed my time in Roanoke. And that's when I got to spread my wings, so we say, as a motorsports writer, by going to places as far away as Michigan when Richard Petty debuted his Chevrolet up there. <laughs> that's another funny story. But in any yeah. case, uh, I'd heard of Grand National Scene during that time. We, fellow uh, motorsports journalists, and I sort of snickered at it. I mean, Did we, you really? Oh, well, yeah. Why is that? Yeah, well, the way it was being sold. It was found by a fellow named Robert E. Griggs, Jr., out of Alabama. And we could watch him in the infield at Talladega, hawking that paper, walking wow. around, holding okay. up. It was only a quarter yeah. trying to sell that paper. Well... That seemed pretty funny to me, and I'd be, I was one of those who thought that he'd never make it doing that sort of stuff. Well, lo and behold, he got bigger and bigger. And he called me one day, and he said, would it be all right if I used your carbons of your columns? Back then, you know, worked on a typewriter, and you didn't have a... A what? Oh, uh, a type. Writer, <laughs> use your and, and what is this thing called you, a typewriter? Well, it had no screen to it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no print. <laughs> In any case, 
you used uh, carbon paper to make your copy, make sure you had a copy in addition to the one you sent back to your paper. Boy, I'm dating myself here. (laughs) (laughs) He asked me if he could use my carbons. In other words, you know, obviously it would appear in the wrong paper first, but he would get a chance to use it in his paper. Said he'd pay me $25 per carbon. Well, I said, well, I wasn't doing any extra work for him, and I, $25 back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that would do, do you well. So that, was said, almost, that was almost <laughs> as much as you paid me for my first freelance. <laughs> <laughs> it was too much. But in any case, <laughs> I started doing that for him, and it went like, like in 78, I think I started, and 78, 79, 80, I kept doing it, and the price kept, it kept increasing the price. So I thought, well, he was on the up and up. At least he was honest with me. Right. And, of course, I was getting the paper for free and looking at it. And, uh, you know, he had done some things correctly, I assumed, Uh, like using Gene Granger at the time, one of the most notorious motorsports muckrakers (laughs) there was out there. He, he was out of Spartanburg, and he had that reputation, and he was well-known. And he was not afraid of calling a spade a spade, shall we say. Right. So I said, well, he had him. That was good. That was good. Well, finally, in 1981, Griggs gave me a call, and I went down to the Concord, North Carolina, to see him. And he offered me a job as the quote-unquote executive editor of the paper. And I said, you can't afford me. And I wasn't being smart. I mean, I was just saying, you know, at the time, I didn't think he could afford nearly as much money as I would require, which wasn't a lot, trust me. Right. But you understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, well, when I can, I'll call you back. I said, okay. He called me back in a month, and he offered me the same amount of money that uh, I was making in Roanoke. Plus, he would pay my moving expenses. So I thought it over and talked it over with my family, and I had to come to the realization that I was always going to be a sports writer in Roanoke, never an editor. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll take it. So I went down there, and I, I took the job, and I came into my office the first day as office. was a converted country store. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that is one of the questions that I wanted to ask. I think from the way that you described it, you kind of had a culture shock. Oh, a big time. Uh, coming oh. from Roanoke in a nice, new, modern building, working on computers. Right. And, and you walk, cars. Yeah, you walk into this converted country store, and you tell a great story about your inbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, when I looked at the, where I was to work, I had one of these metal desks, one of these old-time royal typewriters, and a chicken wire inbox. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And I'm sure that chair I got came from some surplus store somewhere, or whatever the case may be. And just like you mentioned, I thought about it. I looked at it, and I said, what the heck have I done? I mean, here I leave this beautiful marble four-story office building in Roanoke where I had a company car, I had an expense account, you know, uh, I was making good money and computers were starting to come in and uh, everything of that nature, and here I am in this. So to be honest with you, I was kind of worried that I had done the wrong thing. But as time went on, 
uh, I found out that it was the right thing because we started growing and moving to new buildings and adding staff as we, as we progressed. And in the final stages of my tenure was seen, all right? We not only had company cars, we were in a brand new building out in Concord that Griggs had built himself. It was custom made. Plus, in the back, we had a full-blown photo studio yeah. that could handle race cars and everything else. So this was the culmination of what Griggs promised me years before. And I had to tell myself at that particular time, hey, this is good. You know, for, for materialistic purposes, this is good. But it was also better another way. And you can imagine what that is, that the quality of the staff and the publication that we put out made seen the Bible of NASCAR stock car racing. And I was proud of that. At what point did you get over the feeling of, oh, my gosh, what have I done? How long did it take? It took uh, uh, about two years. Really? The reason I say that is because when I came down there, uh, Greeks told me, he said, stick with me. We're going to grow. We're going to make this paper work. And, and we will have everything that the other companies have before long. We will have company cars. We will have full-blown expense accounts. We will go to races everywhere. And just trust me. Well, after two years, I found out that's exactly what we were doing. And we got the first of our company cars. Not that company cars is a big deal. But uh, you understand it is something that relieves you of your own expenses. You don't have to pay for the uh, upkeep of your car. So that was a, a sign to me that, that things were working out. And so I felt, I felt more comfortable at the end of the second year than I did, obviously, when I got there. And my title was executive editor, and I was making decisions, but I also wrote. I was, I was helping people cover every race that we went to at that particular time. Uh, so I was still, mo more or less, uh, still a writer. And uh, that, was, that was also a very good feeling. But like I said earlier, the, the, the growth of the paper was exponential, exponential. By the time uh, three or four seasons had gone by, we could see the path ahead of us, that it was very clear. Well, you know, the thing that I respect about Grand National Scene's place in the sport, mm -hmm. Winston Cup Scene's place in the sport, is its growth kind of paralleled the sports growth. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that Scene had a big part in that. And one of the things I did want to talk to you about was how you feel those two went hand in hand, the growth of the sport and the growth of the paper. That was the key to the growth of Scene, was the growth of the sport. We had latched ourselves on to a star. You know, as the sport grew, we were able to grow. And then as we grew, we never neglected what we needed to do for ourselves. In other words, we needed equipment, we were able to get it. We, were, we needed transportation, we were able to get it. Most important, we were able to get quality people. That's what set us apart from the other trade papers of the day that we targeted and got people who had already established themselves either in the sport or with their talent and were able to bring them on board. So the quality of the staff 
uh, of seeing always was high. And that, to me, was a significant factor in the, in the growth and the popularity of the newspaper as well. You know, that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask about some of the people that you covered, because you broke into the sport at a time where you could get to know some of the people that you were covering. And I have so many questions about so many different people. You have written just some phenomenal stories about Dell Earnhardt. There was one major feature in the paper, I believe, in about 1980, where you kind of trailed him to the local Christmas parade and were his driver. Right. And then another column that stuck out to me was one where you went out on the lake with him one day. Yeah. Tell me about the Dale Earnhardt that you knew, not the seven-time champion, not the, not the driver, but tell me about Dale Earnhardt, the person. All right. I, I, I learned from him. Uh, basically, that if he liked you, he was a true friend. In other words, he was not just an associate. And the, the proof of that, to me, came when I moved to Concord uh, in 1981. I had covered Dale all, since his start, you know, three or four years ago. And at the time, his Rod Oshlin days and all that sort of thing. So I was moving to Concord, and I was staying with a friend of mine, for three months until school was over and my family could come down. Earnhardt found out about that. And he said, wait a minute. He said, come to my house right now. So I drove to his house and I walked in and he showed me the entire lower level of the house. He said, you can live here. You got your own private bathroom, your own bedroom, you know, things of that nature and your own private entrance. Now imagine, imagine a champion of this sport, asking a writer to do the same today. Now, if I'm not mistaken, though, you turned him down. Is that correct? I, yeah, I did. I was very tempted to do that. And I said, Dale, I really, really appreciate this. But you have to understand, it's not good for the editor of a racing newspaper to be living with the champion. And he understood. He understood. That right there speaks volumes about the relationship that you had. You were friends, but you you still maintained a, a sense of professional... Yeah, he knew the difference. Yeah. He knew the difference. And, you know, when we were at the racetrack, sure, we used to have lunch together in his hauler and talk everything but racing. we talk politics, you know, we talk current events, things of that nature, which I always like to do with drivers. I got a lot of stories about talking to drivers about things that don't have anything to do with stock car racing. But then when the competition began and, and the grind of the race and preparation and the race itself went on, you know, I was obligated to ask him questions he may not like to hear, like what happened out there, you know, that sort of thing. But he always answered it, you know, deliberately and honestly, and because I think he realized we had jobs to do. We could be friends, but we had jobs to do. And uh, back in those days, Rick, I can't impress upon you enough how much that type of relationship existed among media members and selected race drivers all the way down the line. The race drivers themselves and the team owners, they respected the honest journalists, you know, the guys who were fair. And by being fair, I mean, when there was a controversy, you not only printed one side of the story, you printed the other. And they, they understood that. 
so they were never really afraid or worried to be talking with you. Well, you know, that's the thing that I enjoyed about covering the Bush series for Winston Cup scene because at that time, the Bush series, from what I understand, was at a point that the Winston Cup division had been several years before because I was afforded the opportunity to to forge a relationship with both sides. And I I remember very vividly being able to go, you know, after Buckshot Jones and Randy LaJoy had one of their many, many run-ins, I was able to go to Randy and I was able to go to Buckshot. Yeah, sure. And I was able to get both sides of the story. Right. And, you know, what was it like for you watching Dale's star begin to, to rise? Because I, I can't imagine, I assume that you saw him in his bread and water days. Yeah. And you then you also knew him as a seven-time champion. What was it like to watch that rise? It was It was impressive to me. Very impressive because I could say and print what I knew to be the truth about his rise, and which was this is a guy who sacrificed when he was very young, had nothing, nothing, troubled marriages, trying to make it in racing, whatever you want to say. You know, he started out racing for independent team owners just to make a, a name for himself. Got hooked up with Rod Oslin and my one rookie of the year and a championship in successive seasons, 79-80, and then went on to experience the horrid uh, feeling that his team collapsed underneath him. Oslin pulled out, and the team was bought by Jim Stacy at that time. Eh, a shady character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Earnhardt quit. Quit. Because... Uh, he didn't want to drive for Stacy. Now you would have thought that this would have been this could have been a man who came and went in the sport fast. You know, just a puff of smoke and then the breeze he's gone. No, Un- uh, you know, fortunately for him, he had the name and the talent, and he had Wrangler sponsorship to go out and seek another ride that could carry him forward, and that was Richard Childress. We all know what's happened since that particular time. He did spend a couple of years with Bud Moore, but it came back to Richard Childress, and those guys, you know, achieved history. So look at the effort that he made. Look at where he came from and look where he went to. You can't help but admire it. You can't help but say this is not anybody who was given anything. You know, he did it on his own. As time progressed, mm-hmm. he obviously became – far more successful than anybody could have ever imagined. And by the time I broke into the sport in late 1994, full time, he had just clinched his seventh championship. And to put it nicely, I didn't have that kind of relationship with Dale Sr. I never got behind that veil. On a couple of occasions, you know, he was pretty much flat out rude. Yeah. Was there ever a point where you went to him and said, hey, you've got too big a shell or was that something that you just let alone? Uh, I never recall saying anything like like that to him. It's because I never experienced it with him. And maybe that I should have realized uh, where that shell was and how how he could be. And he could be that I, I had seen him uh, of that. Uh, But, I never really recognized it on my own part because our relationship was so much different. I mean, yeah, he won his seventh championship, and he he's up there in New York, 
And uh, he was in the presidential suite, as you might imagine, and he invited only a handful of writers to come up and join him and have an exclusive interview. Might have been five of us. And we conduct the interview. Oh, I gotta tell you, Rick, this was a major league interview. Yeah. He had two butlers there, food, <laughs> food spread out, yeah. anything you want to drink, you know, that sort of thing. And we, we had the, uh, the, uh, the interview, and he was sitting in the Kennedy rocking chair as he conducted that interview with the five of us. And uh, after it was over, we thanked him, and we all started to leave. And he said, wages. He always called me wages for some reason. Hold up. Don't go. Come back and let's talk. So I went back and we sat down on the couch together. And as we usually do, we talked about politics and we talked about current events and that nature. And, you know, we weren't always in agreement when it came to politics. Dale was pretty conservative. Uh, But we enjoyed the talk together. So that, to me, is the kind of thing that, that I enjoyed having with him. And uh, so that's to me, is probably a big reason why I may have seen the veil of the hard shell, but never did anything about it. All right, cool. Now, obviously, he's still around in a lot of ways. Certainly his legacy uh, is important to the sport, but his son and his daughter still have two very, very big roles in this sport, and you've known them. Yeah. forever and ever talk about the relationship with Dale senior and Dale jr and Kelly and Carrie. The one thing that I remember him definitely saying to me about those kids, he knew obviously that Dale and Kelly wanted to race. And he told me point blank, we were sitting out on his farm and he said, uh, they're not going to get anything. I don't care what they think I am or who I am. They're going to earn every bit of it. They're going to learn how to build a race car. They're going to learn everything about those cars before I let them proceed. And I talked to Dale Jr. years later. He was in the Bush Series where you knew him well, probably better than anybody. Uh, He told me that was true. That was true. He said the same way that my granddaddy, Ralph treated him was the way he treated us. Uh, we were not get given anything. When I came here to drive for Daddy, he said, I knew exactly what was expected of me, and I knew that as much as my crew was going to get their hands dirty, my hands were going to get dirty too. And so I accepted that. Let me ask you this question. When you see somebody on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and say, well, Dell Jr., he, he had everything in the world handed to him. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and that's why I don't like him. What's your reaction to that? that I, to me, well, that's, that's crap. Yeah, well, I agree with you. It's not true. It isn't true. That's not the way it was at all. Because, like I said earlier, I, I could remember Dale telling me that they weren't going to be given anything, and I can remember a young Dale Jr. crawling underneath the race car to work on it. I saw that, and I remember that he lived in a dump (laughs) 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 near the the shop because he wasn't going to be given anything. He did work his way out of it. Now, the only advantage he had, if you want to call it an advantage, 
was that he could race for his father's team, where there was obviously many good, valuable resources that he could tap into. I will agree with that. But by the same token, if you don't have uh, the diligence to work and the talent to drive, Dale Learnhardt wasn't going to give you a thing. No. <laughs> no. If, he, if he couldn't match what was expected of him, he wouldn't be there racing for his father. Never, in my opinion. And there are teams like that in the past where the youngest, the son, had to go race somewhere else. And I say largely because he didn't meet the expectations that the father had established. Well, Dale did. So giving handed anything to him is not true. You knew Dale Earnhardt, the person. What do you think he would think of the legacy that Dale Jr. and Kelly have built over at Junior Motorsports. Right. I think he'd be very proud. Uh, I know he'd be very proud because consider this. Uh, not only is Dale Jr. being a Bush Series champion and the, the most popular driver in NASCAR, period, and not only has his daughter worked hard to support Dale and make that team what it is today, Think about the other things. Dale Jr. is going into television, number one. Number two, he's got a chain of restaurants. <laughs> uh, I think he still has, a, a, like, a, I want to call it a show business marketing firm or, you know, type of thing. I don't know too much about it, but I know it's out there. So how he has expanded uh, his businesses indicates that he had a great vision to do things other than drive a car. And I think that's what his father tried to do in the years before his tragic death. But Dale Jr. has done it, so he can't help but be very proud of that situation. How about on the personal side with Dale Jr., now a married man, dad to little dollar? Even more so. Yeah. Even more so. Now, I don't want this to sound negative because it's not. But when it came to home life and married life, Dale was not the best. His father was not the best. Unfortunate circumstances, I agree. And I agree he didn't get married when he had money. He got married when he had none. And that doesn't help. Uh, so the circumstances were different, but it was still there. Dale married late in life, had kid later, later in his life, but that's fine. Because I think he's got stability, and I think he's got uh, a whole lot of emotional uh, contact with his wife and his family. And I think, I think, this is my own personal opinion, he retired from racing so he could have a child and be with that child more than he ever could as a driver. As I mentioned, there are so many different people that I do want to ask you about, but you've already mentioned him, uh, Richard Petty. Take me behind the sunglasses and under the cowboy hat. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, pretty much with Richard, what you saw is what you got. Uh, under the hat and away from the sunglasses, I never really saw uh, much of a change in that man at all. And, uh, you know... He's the kind of guy to me, he would come up, his favorite greeting was, hi, buddy. <laughs> you know, shake your yeah. hand. Well, what driver does that today? Yeah. I mean, he still does it today. 
and he's 80 years old. And uh, that, I think, was a product of the way, not only what he raised up, but he realized very early in his career that to be successful meant that you had to be the kind of man who recognized the importance of the fans and recognized the importance of the media. And so he did. I don't have to tell you about what he's done to the fans. Right. How he should, you know, autograph sessions for hours and open house and all. I go on forever. Let me tell you a story about him and, and the media, which tells me how he felt about them. Was one time, uh, I think it was uh, a while back, uh, some of his team members kind of grossing about the media. Yeah, and this, I, as I recall, it wasn't a particularly good time for Petty Enterprises. They weren't exactly burning up the track, shall we say, like, like they used to in the 60s and the 70s. So much of the coverage was not all that favorable. But it was honest, but it wasn't favorable. And so some team members uh, would grouse about it. And Richard Petty took them aside. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, the reason there are people in that seats out there watching you is because of the fact that the media tells them what's going on and encourages them in their own way to come out and see the races. And what happens when they go to the races? They spend money. And what happens when they spend money? The promoters make money, and we make money. Another thing I want you to remember is when we're packed up and we're getting ready to leave the track after a long, hard day's work, their work is just beginning, just beginning. And we are on the road, on the way home, or some of us are already home, before those guys, those guys are ever finished. When they go home, it's the dead of night or early in the morning, and we're home sleeping. Now I want you to think about that before you start grousing against the media. Today's drivers, are you out there? Uh, you listening? <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> it's a different situation for the drivers today, and I can sum it up in one word, technology. Yeah. That, that makes all the difference in the world. And I do understand why today's drivers do have to be guarded to a certain extent because every person has a cell phone and that cell phone has a camera and you can go viral within seconds right? if you slip up. As you well know, we can turn on the televisions today and see images that people use their cell phones to take that we could never, ever see in the past. And one person asked me, he says, as a media, media member, how come all we see is riots, death, violence, earthquakes, whatever you want to call it? And I said, that's because years ago, nobody could show you that violence and that earthquakes and so forth and so on. That is technology. We have the capability of taking pictures and videos of everything from a cell camera to a satellite up there in the sky. And more of that gets down and more of that gets seen. That's the difference. The other person that I wanted to ask you about, and it's because of a column that you wrote after his tragic plane crash, but you wrote a column after Alan Kowicki died. I think a lot of people considered Alan a little bit strange, you know, very quiet, very reserved. But that isn't the Alan Kowicki that you described in that column, you knew 
again, like you knew Dale Earnhardt and you knew uh, Richard Petty, you knew Alan Quickie, the person, and not Alan Quickie, the driver. I, I did. And uh, I really can't remember how it started other than the fact that we clicked. Uh, now, by the time Alan came along, uh, uh, shall we say I had a certain statute in the sports that, you know, stature. And I'm not bragging, but it, it reached a point where young guys who came into the sport knew me. You know, knew me right away by name at least. So when I got to talking with them, I was able to to find out a few more things than other people would have. And we just clicked. Now, Alan indeed seemed strange to everybody in the garage area. Nobody took a briefcase to the racetrack, for example. <laughs> and uh, and everybody said, there's no way this this kid is going to make it running his own team. And, uh, you know, I sort of agreed with that, but I was just going to see how far it went. Well, after a while, I forgot about watching him trying to make it as opposed to being his friend. When I say friend... It was a beyond the usual racetrack association. I went to his place with, and, and several times he came to mine. When's the last time a race driver came to your house? You know, that type of thing. He even let my wife borrow his racing uniform for Halloween. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Has she still got it? Uh, no. <laughs> well, we had to give that one back. <laughs> but, yeah, she's walking around with our kids going trick-or-treating with a Z-Rex uniform on. So uh, that was the kind of a relationship I had with uh, with Alan. And there are things about him that, that uh, I've already mentioned seem strange to others. But as you watched him, they weren't any strange. They were, they were right on target to being successful. One thing people didn't realize, he was very smart. He was, he was college-educated, and he was self-driven. Alan Quiggy had, I'll give you an example, a booklet of inspirational sayings, and he read one of those every day. And I thought, who does that? But that was to, you know, obviously to inspire himself, but to get ideas of how to get better and how to improve. Now, the only downside to Alan was he was a perfectionist. He absolutely had to have it done his way. And a lot of people thought, well, that's kind of a bad thing. But you know what? For him and his team, his way was the right way. And if you didn't accept his way, you weren't there very long. Go ask Ray Evernham. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think he lasted three races or something like that. But of course, he was the great crew chief in his own right. But so Allen developed his team and, and his championship by doing things his way and being the perfectionist that he was. But he was also a very funny guy. I asked him one time, one time I said, well, Alan, what it is about you? And he said, I'm just a collection of noble attributes. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. So when, you know, I'll give you another example of how he was determined to do it his way. Junior Johnson offered him a ride. And Junior told me, he said, you know, if you get Alan Quickie on my team, I don't need a general manager anymore. And he was right. Wow. I hadn't you, thought of it that yeah, way. You, yeah. You had a general manager built in. Alan said no. Said he thought, Alan said, I've got a sponsor. 
And Junior told him, no, you don't have that sponsor. Yes, I do, and I'm going to go out and do it my way. Well, that sponsor was Maxwell House, and they went to Junior. And Junior did have that sponsor. Didn't slow Allen down a bit. And um, as we all know, and I don't have to tell you because you wrote the book, his, his strategy in that race that won him the 92 championship was brilliant. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It was brilliant. Yeah, he had some luck on his side. You know, for example, Davy being taken out in the wreck, that didn't hurt him a single bit. But by the same token, his strategy was brilliant to win that championship. And uh, I think that that, in the, that was the final proof that he could use his intelligence, his perfectionism, and his own talent to do things his way. And he won a championship doing it his way. And guess who he beat? Junior Johnson. So it's pretty <laughs> ironic. When he was going through all that with Junior, obviously you had to interview him about, you know, all his options and everything like that. But off the record, did he ask you what you thought? Yeah, he did. And I gave him the wrong answer too many times. (laughs) (laughs) I told him, I said, why do you want to continue to, to suffer and struggle with doing this? Every single day when the burden could be taken off of you. Imagine what you could be if you were just the driver. And for a guy like Junior Johnson, he said, my problem is I don't want to be just the driver. He said, I want to be able to control my own destiny. And you really can't do that even when you're driving for a man and a team as talented and well-known as Junior Johnson. So I said, okay, well, try it your way. And, uh, of course, he did, as you will know. And he was extremely successful. Now, here's the thing about what we're trying to do at the Scene Vault. Grand National Scene, Winston Cup Scene, was there for the entirety of Dale Earnhardt's full-time Winston Cup career. Winston Cup Scene was there for the entirety of Alan Koike's career and so many other drivers. What do you think... Winston Cup Scene's legacy is to the sport. I think Winston Cup Scene's legacy is an, it is the perfect source of historical data and opinion of the sport through all these years we are talking about. And the reason that is so is because of the extremely talented staff we had. I could sit here with you all day and name these people and their achievements and their accomplishments. And several of them are still with us today, working very well with other things, websites and what have you. But the amount of talent that we had, and if I had told people, some of the people who work for us, they wouldn't believe it. They would not believe it. And, and so I got to the point where I realized what we had done in shaping uh, the sports media, functions, performances, and we did it right. We did it right with good people. We should point, Rick, all I had to do was get out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Just let let them work. And uh, so by that talent was the foundation for the quality of publication that scene was because everything in there was not fly-by-night or hearsay or whatever happened. It was well-researched and well-written 
And I think the scene vault, by providing what scenes had all those years, is a marvelous resource for today's fans. I don't know of any other archive that is as complete a record of what happened in the world of NASCAR from 1977 through 2009. So that's a 32-year period where we completely covered what happened. From day one in this entire process, it has been my goal to see that not get lost. Right. I don't want these newspapers to sit on my shelf and collect dust because every time I open up an issue, I, I learn something new or I remember some special memory of whatever happened. Right. That simply cannot get lost. So, you know, I don't want to get into the details of, you know, the red tape and, and all that kind of thing, but I really do think that it is important to see all these issues get digitized and preserved and shared with race fans who care about the sports past. And I will go this far. Nothing aggravates me more than somebody who says that they don't follow the sport because it's not the way that it used to be. Today, there is a lot to love about NASCAR. Sure, it has its problems. Every major sport has its problems. But the role that I see for the scene vault is a way to connect the sport's past with its present. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. There is uh, uh, no better source of available information and entertainment that took place for all those years than the scene vault and the scene issues. I can tell you honestly that I have gone back and read a few pieces that I wrote. I don't remember a thing about them. I mean, I don't remember writing them or anything. <laughs> Holy mackerel. <laughs> well, you write so much over the years, you can't keep track of all of it. But my goodness, think about having this source that people can use. And I agree with you 100%. It has no way of being lost. Can't do it. We cannot do it. And it has to be available to the fans and even to the media members and team members as a valuable, valuable resource. Here's the reason I say that. The day that we and NASCAR forget NASCAR's past, that's the day the sport has no future. Amen. Preach, brother. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) Hear me now. (laughs) Well, Steve, any other closing thoughts? Only that I think the scene vault is a very noble and very necessary project. I certainly hope it goes well and the best uh, happens because of the fans are going to be so rewarded. The other thing is to thank you very much, Rick, for having me on to talk about it and call the old days. And yes, I remember when you were with us as the Bush series. <laughs> I don't know what you were thinking when oh, you hired yeah. me. <laughs> I, <laughs> we said, well, what are we going to do here? Well, I don't know. You, <laughs> you call him up. No, you call him up. <laughs> but in any case. No. Let me ask you this. Do you remember the bumper sticker that I put on Elmo Langley's pace car? I think so. I <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and you still hired me. Yes. I remember a guy named Rick Houston in Bristol standing down at the first turn, right before <laughs> the wall in the first turn, waving to the press box. Hire me, hire me, hire yeah. me. <laughs> I said, shoot him, but then, no. <laughs> <laughs> For a little context, I did want the job at Winston Cup seen very badly. 
So I had a few bumper stickers made up <laughs> oh, that yeah. said Hire Rick. And Elmo Langley was the pace car driver at the time. He let me tape it to the inside of the pace car on the right-hand side so it would face the press box. Yeah, I remember that, too. And you know what? That was probably one of the inspirations to hiring you. We figure anybody that much enterprise would make a pretty good reporter. Awesome. Now, fans, hopefully you enjoyed the podcast. We'll be back next week with an episode on David Pearson. Give us a like on iTunes. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. That will help. And also, I have a program on Patreon. If you support us, this podcast, to the tune of $10 a month, you'll get a copy of both of my NASCAR-related books, Dell versus Daytona, The Intimidator's Quest to Win the Great American Race, and NASCAR's Greatest Race, the 1992 Hooters 500. So... If you want just one of them, five bucks a month. So that's a deal for you. Five bucks a month will get you one of the books. Ten bucks a month will get you both of the books. So until next time, thanks a lot for listening.